Thanks so much for listening to the weekly teaching podcast from Prodigal Church. We're so glad you're connecting with us online. If you've been listening for a while or you consider Prodigal as your home church, would you consider giving monthly to support this ministry? We're so grateful for the increasing impact our church is having on our online listeners. Thanks for being a part of us. You can discover all things Prodigal on the Prodigal mobile app, available at your app store or on our website, prodigalchurchfresno.com. Now, let's dive right into this week's teaching. At the end of the 1990s, in the last several moments of the entire 90s era, there was something that we all feared. Two letters, one number, Y2K. The Y2K bug. Uh, the United States, as well as the rest of the world, were gearing up and making preparations and investing in, in infrastructure changes for the Y2K bug. Are computers going to be able to understand that the year 1999 moves to 2000? Or if it only counts the last two dates, uh, the last two numbers, 99 to 00, is it going to just mess everything up? Is the world going to end because of the Y2K bug? Now, if you weren't around for this, this, I assure you, this was a very real thing. Worldwide, there was $308 billion spent uh, for Y2K remediation. I was a freshman in college at the end of 1999, and my friends and I did not fear the Y2K bug, okay? We did not think it was going to be the apocalypse, but some people that we knew did, and they kind of had to get together at their house and kind of had this, this little Y2K party, and, and, but they, there, was, there was fear, it was palpable. And so at 11.45 on New Year's Eve, my friends and I sneak up to this house and we go to the power box and we wait for the countdown. And sure enough, at 11.59, you can hear the house from outside going 59, 58, 57, and, and we had our hand on the power box so that as soon as it hit zero, we crashed the power. And so that's exactly what happened. Five, four, three, two, one. We hit the power box. We hear everybody scream. There's pandemonium. I heard someone say, save me, Jesus, save me. And we laughed hysterically and pushed each other into the bushes. It was amazing. Now, in the 1990s, there was always something to fear. Who remembers this 90s TV show theme song? Yes, it's the X-Files. We love this show in the 90s. I remember, if I remember correctly, my mom and my sister, they kind of got a little bit scared of this show, but me and my brother, we loved it. Um, This one didn't scare me. Unsolved Mysteries, that scared me a little bit, okay? Anybody else with me on that? Okay, because that was real. But The X-Files, it's science fiction. And the series revolves around um, FBI special agents Fox Mulder and Dana Scully. And they investigate X-Files, marginalized, unsolved cases involving paranormal phenomena. Mulder believes in the existence of aliens and the supernatural in the paranormal, while Scully, a medical doctor, is a skeptic. And Scully is assigned to scientifically analyze Mulder's discoveries. And so early on in the series, both agents kind of become pawns in this larger conflict between good and evil, and they only come to trust just a few people. Agents discover a government agenda to keep um, alien life a secret, and they develop a close friendship that starts out as platonic, but by the end of the series, of course, was a romance. Both the series itself and the actors and actresses received lots of awards and nominations, uh, and by the conclusion of the show, it was the longest-running 
science fiction show in television history. The X-Files. The truth is out there. Okay, John, so the show is the X-Files today. How in the world, what are we gonna be talking about? Like, what does the Bible say about alien life? No, that's not what we're gonna be talking about, though some of you right now are, are very curious about that. The drama between Mulder and Scully isn't about are there aliens or not. It isn't about belief and skepticism. It isn't about the supernatural and the natural. It isn't about the spiritual and the scientific. And as Mulder and Scully discovered, these two dichotomies, religion and science, they're not enemies. Science and faith are not enemies. They are dance partners. Both are looking for truth. That's true. Look at Psalm 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all the world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. It bursts forth like a radiant bridegroom after his wedding. It rejoices like a great athlete eager to run the race. The sun rises at one end of the heavens and follows its course to the other end. Nothing can hide from its heat. Yes and amen. Have you ever walked outside under the bright night sky and been absolutely in awe at the beauty and the wonder and the vastness of God's universe? Have you ever looked at the intricacies of nature, the smallest things in nature and how beautiful they are and how beautiful they become? God applauds it. God created it. President Roosevelt said that it was easy for him, being the most powerful man on earth, to get a big head, to think more highly of himself than he ought. And so often, uh, during big meetings at night, he would immediately walk to the balcony outdoors, stand on the terrace and look at the night sky. And he and his advisors would stand and look up for five to 10 minutes. And then he would say, okay, gentlemen, I think we're small enough now. Let's continue our meeting. When we put ourselves and our problems and our issues and our shortcomings and our failures in comparison to the God of the universe in the vastness of the God who holds the universe in his hands, it puts things in perspective. The new discoveries in science are beautiful and awe-inspiring. We should appreciate them. Uh, we should appreciate our creator, not question him about them. God's really big. The Bible says itself that there are not enough words to describe God. God is not contained in a book. So how do we get here today? How do we get to the, this point where the scientific community and the religious community are like this? How do we get to this point to where many in the church feel threatened by science? And if science and the life of faith are to be friends and not enemies, how on earth did we get here? And so today we're going to go back to school. First, we're going to do some history. Then we're going to do some physics. Then we're going to do some astronomy and then some theology. Okay, so we're all going back to school today. So first, some history. This is a photo of Galileo. Uh, and 500 years ago, he desired to enter the priesthood, but at the urging of his father, he uh, entered the University of Pisa to study medicine and science. This led to a very fruitful and insightful career. 
Galileo and others like him, like Copernicus, began to see that the earth isn't the center of the universe, but rather the earth revolves around the sun and not the other way around. And well, this is blatantly against clear biblical teaching, right? Every good Christian at the time knew that the earth is the center of God's universe. And Galileo was charged with heresy by the church in 1633 for teaching that the earth orbits around the sun. And from this instance, we see that science and faith are not friends, but foes. If you question traditional understandings of faith, then you don't belong here. There is no room for questioning the authority of the church because that is a questioning, that's questioning the authority of God and his word. And so the fire that began 500 years ago with Galileo rages on still today. And for many in the church, rather than embrace any kind of reputable science, we put our fingers in our ears and we refuse to listen. And this is not Christ-like, this is not the desire of God. When I was in youth group in the 1990s, uh, we were taught apologetics. And apologetics is basically um, how to defend your faith using arguments and facts uh, uh, to defend your faith. But often it became debating people about faith, picking fights arguing. And in the 90s, there were several religious fights that did very little to advance the kingdom of God. And one was this fight with science. And in a moment, I'm going to say a word. And when I say this word, if you were around at any time in the, in the church, in the Christian history, uh, from 1950 to the, to the year 2000, uh, this word is going to evoke something of this fight between science and Christianity. Okay, it begins with an E. You know what word it is? Evolution. This one word describes one of the most dominant ways Christians have fought with science. I remember being trained to argue people out of being taught evolution. I remember being trained to teach my science teacher, to debate my science teacher about creationism versus evolution. And let me just say very clearly, I do not think that the theory of evolution is evil. I was taught that. I don't think it's evil. I don't think that in any way contradicts anything that the Bible has to say, because the Bible's not a science book, and it never claimed to be one. The opening chapters in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, uh, have a, it does have a creation account, but it's written in poetry. I don't know how many of your science textbooks start out in poetry. Now, we're going to be doing a sermon series in the fall about the Bible and how to read the Bible and misunderstanding the Bible and understanding the Bible. And it's going to be great, but the creation account in Genesis might not be saying what we want it to say. It is saying what God wants it to say, but it might not be saying what we want it to say. Now, an illustration might be helpful here. Okay, let's pretend you are going to go to a play. And for whatever reason, you're 30, minutes, you're 30 minutes late, you show up, and the play's already began, and you get your playbill, and you find your seat, and you walk in, sit down, and you whisper a question to the stranger next to you. You say, how did the play begin? And this person's very kind. Even though you just interrupted him, he answers. He says, well, the play was written in 1934, and it was a Pulitzer Prize candidate when, and then you're like, no, 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 no. Like, I don't want to know about the script. Well, that's how the play began, right? Like, you can't have a play without a script. And he's like, okay, okay, I get that, but that's not what I want. And then the man says, oh, I understand. 
well, this theater and the stage was built in the 1950s. No, 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 I don't want to know that either. Well, you can't have a play without a stage. You have to have a place to perform it. Okay, I know that, but that is not my question. Okay, fine. The set was constructed three years ago and it was purposed for this particular play because, no, 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 I'm not interested in the set. Well, what would the play be without the set? And now a lady on the other side has kind of gotten interested in the conversation. She, she goes, let me straighten this out. And she says, the cast was chosen by the Johnson Casting Company. No, 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 that is not what I want to know. Tell me what happened since the curtain opened. Oh, they say. Well, that's not really how the play began. Well, yes it is by my question. You can see that all those answers that are given by the strangers watching the play are correct answers. All of those aspects are necessary for the play. That doesn't mean that every question and every story and every answer is interested in all those other factors. So when we talk about the cosmos and their scientific origin in our universe, we're talking a lot about a stage and a theater and a script. But perhaps the people Israel in writing the book of Genesis didn't really care about the stage or the theater. Do they know that there was one? Of course they do. They knew there was a very beginning, but they're interested in something else. They want to know what has happened since the curtain was drawn. When they were asked, how did the world begin? There are many different ways that can be answered correctly, but not every answer is the same and not everybody wants the same answer in mind. And that's why when we read the Bible in the, in the opening chapters, Genesis 1 through 3, we need to ask, what kind of creation account is this? What is the story they want to tell me, not the story I want to know? Now, I think that Christians can disagree on what story they think the people of Israel wanted to tell, but fighting about the details is an adventure in missing the point. Science and the Bible are not enemies. Science and God are not enemies. One is not completely antithetical to the other. I can't tell you how many people I know that are born and raised in the church and they're protected from the bad world out there. They're safe inside the church walls and they, they, they were told that what to believe and all these are good things. All those are good things. But then they go to college. They start to meet people much different than them. They start to see and encounter truth in unexpected ways and in unexpected places and in unexpected people. And so it doesn't seem to line up with what they've, what they've always been taught about life and God and the universe and the world and our role to play in it. And so, because this one thing that, that you were taught isn't true, you discover that it's not true the way that you were always taught. Well, you throw the whole baby out with the bathwater. You get rid of everything. They walk away from Jesus. The church should instead be a place to wrestle with the deepest questions of life. The newest discoveries in science and astronomy, archaeology, they're not threatening, they're thrilling. Werner Heisenberg, the great German theoretical physicist, he was a pioneer of quantum mechanics, okay? He said this, and this is just absolutely astounding. He said, the first gulp from the glass of natural sciences will turn you into an atheist. But at the bottom of the glass, God is there waiting for you.
Isn't that so great? Oh, it's so true. God is for human reason. There are some aspects of our faith that take blind faith. But if you've never done the deep thinking and wrestling with uh, why you believe what you believe, how you believe what you believe, under immense pressure, your faith will crumble. I believe that I do have good reasons to be convinced of the truths that I find in scripture and to the convictions that I have in following Jesus. And those convictions are much bigger than simply God said it, that settles it. No, I have reasons. Human reason, I believe, leads us to a life of faith. When I was in college, I didn't go to fraternity parties um, and make those kinds of mistakes. I made other kinds of mistakes. We used to launch water balloons at tennis players at the tennis courts of Clovis West. Funny that we as a church are meeting across the street from this very school that I used to launch water balloons at innocent people. Now, this one particular night, we get on the softball field about 100 yards away, and the first one, we got two people on the launcher, one's holding it this side, one's holding this side, the other person pulls it down, launches it, and he says, that one's money, that one's gonna be good. And it goes, splashes on the guy's face. Can you imagine? You're playing a friendly game of tennis. You're having a great time going back and forth, and then boom, you're just hit and struck with a water balloon right in your facial region. Okay, we thought it was a miracle. We were laughing hysterically. Do you know the odds of hitting a moving target with a water balloon 100 yards away? If we had filled up the balloon just a tiny bit more, it would have been short. If we had filled up the balloon a tiny bit less, it would have been long. What if there was a little bit more wind? Or if either guy holding the launcher were a little bit stronger or a little bit weaker, if the angle was off by just a half an inch, we would have missed him. The balloon had to be calibrated just right to hit its target. That's physics, okay? That's science. The universe also has to be calibrated just right. The universe is not static, it is ever expanding. If there was more mass in the universe, it would collapse in on itself. If there was less mass, uh, it would spread out too quickly for life to be able to support by solar systems and stars. That's astronomy. How, how fine-tuned does the universe need to be calibrated? Uh, Mark Horton, NASA scientist, said this, if the balance between gravity and the expansion rate were altered by one part in one billion, 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 there would be no galaxy, no planet, no stars, no life. If it was off by just the most minute particle, to me, if there are so many things that need to be fine-tuned, it makes the most sense that there is a fine-tuner. Science leads us to God. The first sculpt from natural sciences might make us an atheist, but at the very end, there is God at the very bottom. All of the new discoveries in science, astronomy, quantum physics, archeology, span they're not threatening, they're thrilling. Science, gives us so much, but science lacks much. It's not the answer. Science doesn't give us meaning. It doesn't give us hope. It doesn't give us love. So if you are someone who has to understand all of the ins and outs before you take that step, my encouragement for you is 
faith will always take some kind of leap of faith. Now, again, it's okay to run the ramp of reason before you take the leap of faith, but there will always be some aspect of unknowing, of uncertainty. There will always be something more about the heart than the head. See, the capacity, the, the right capacity to experience the kingdom of God is not your intellect. No, it's your heart. So no matter how much you believe in your mind, Jesus and following Jesus will always be much more about the heart. I want to close with this passage from Ephesians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writing to one of the intellectual capitals um, of Asia Minor. He says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. May it be so. God, we thank you so much for the, the truth that you display in your creation. We thank you for the love that you show in your creation. God, I pray that we as followers of Jesus would be much more likely to love others than to debate others. God, help us with our questions, with our doubts. And God, we pray that you would um, show yourself to how, how big you are and how vast you are and that, that you would uh, help us grasp your great love for all of humanity and that we may go and do likewise in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week is the finale of our 90s throwback series, and we're going to have a ton of fun. And so if you're here online, uh, we love you, and we are stoked that you are here. But if you'd like to visit us in person, we're at Fort Washington Elementary School Courtyard every Sunday at 10 a.m. We've got some fun things planned there as well. We hope you have a great week. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Our troubles are all the same You want to be where everybody knows your name